Welcome to the Canaan Bound Podcast, Episode 50. My name is Kyle, a member of Christ Lutheran Church, a Wells Church in Eden Prairie. We'll begin today with God's Word for You with Pastor Timothy Smith. God's Word for You, Job 15, verses 17 to 26. Listen to me and I will explain to you. This is Job's friend Eliphaz speaking. Let me tell you what I have seen. What wise men have declared, hiding nothing received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given when no alien passed among them. All his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless through all the years stored up for him. We'll stop there at verse 20. Especially in verse 20, this is the whole core of everything Eliphaz says. And it comes here at the middle of his middle argument. And I think that's probably significant. Eliphaz's appeals, his appeals are, as always, to wisdom, what wise men have declared, he says. And he expects that Job will defer to that. In verse 19, when we have this phrase, to whom alone the land was given when no alien passed among them, does that verse betray some knowledge of the Israelites in Canaan? Job and his friends do not mention or acknowledge Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, at any time. And apart from a belief in the same God as Abraham, notice that Job uses the title Lord in, in chapter 12, 9, and, and either Lord or Adonai again in 20, 20, 28, 28. But there is very little to indicate that, that Job and his companions knew anything about God's special people. This implies that the conquest under Joshua had maybe not yet taken place. So either Israel, the family or nation, was too small to be of any account, or else the Israelites were at this time down in Egypt, which, as we have noticed before, would, would place Job between um, 2091 B.C., which was the call of Abraham up from Ur, and 1406 B.C., which is the death of Moses and the beginning of the Israelite conquest under Joshua. Here, here in verse 19, we seem to have an indication that at least the rumors of God's promise to Abraham, which are which come in Genesis 22, those rumors were, were known to other people in the area. Lot, for example, the patriarch of the Moabites and the Ammonites, would certainly have spread the same message to him, or maybe probably would have spread the same message to his descendants as well. Let's pick it up at verse 21. Terrifying sounds fill his ears. When all seems well, marauders attack him. He despairs of escaping the darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders about, food for vultures. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. They overwhelm him like a king poised to attack, because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty defiantly charging against him with a stick, a strong, or rather with a thick, strong shield. Eliphaz is trying to defend his idea of God's justice, so he paints uh, an unreal picture with words. In fact, Eliphaz is in denial. I would judge that the reason is probably fear. Deep down, Eliphaz may well be terrified that the things he is picturing here, scary sounds, scary bad people everywhere, the dangers of the sword, the marauder, the vultures, the darkness, and the need for a shield, all things that might happen to him if Job is right. If suffering can come to the innocent, 
then what is to keep all of us from being terrified at times? And the answer is trust. We trust in the Lord to carry us through the difficult times. The enemies of God don't want anyone to trust in God. That's clear from 2 Kings 18.30. They're afraid that God's people might just have it right. And misery loves company. But we're told by David to trust in the Lord in Psalm 4. That's the invitation we have. And we gladly rely on our saving God. He gives us strength. He gives us forgiveness. And he has given us the promise of eternal life. He himself and he alone is our thick, strong shield. And we fear and love and trust in him. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. Next, we join Pastor Aaron Nitz for Moments with the Master. Greetings. This past month, I was selected for jury duty and was called to service. It was an interesting experience for a number of reasons, but one thing that particularly struck me was the general anonymity of it all. There was a general quietness in the journey panel room as about 30 of us filed in and sat there not really knowing anyone else in the room or knowing who of us would be selected for the trial. The judge certainly didn't know us. The attorneys didn't know us. No one particularly cared that I had to leave a pastor's conference early to be there. How was I selected? I and every other juror was selected by a random computer drawing our names from a massive database of people. Impersonal, random, and anonymous. You know, how differently our Lord deals with each of us. The voice of our God reaches out to each of us, not through a loudspeaker or intercom or a letter in the mail, but through his word in a father's voice. He doesn't simply give us general truths, but addresses each of us personally and individually. Now certainly God is the God of the universe, the Lord of all creation and the Savior of the world. But notice his word. You. God funnels all his world-creating, world-sustaining, world-redeeming power and grace down directly to you. This means you. Not you generally, but you particularly and personally. Through his son's death and resurrection, you have been acquitted and set free by the judge whose verdict no court can ever reverse. To God, the world is not an anonymous mass of human people. He sees people individually and personally. He sees you. He baptized you into his name. His son gives you his body and blood and the bread and wine. He forgives you personally. Yes, God loved the world, but he never made his human creatures anonymous numbers in some database. May our Father's love live in each of us. May we see people not as anonymous numbers, but as our Father sees us, Souls, precious souls, souls whom God loves, souls for whom Christ died and rose. A reading from Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Once you were, not, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is God's word. The Lord bless and keep you this day and always.
goodbye. And now Koine will sing Away in a Manger from their album Emmanuel Lux.
Pastor Mark Falk now shares freedom in Christ. Galatians 3, 23-25 The law as pedagogue. Sit down and listen. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners to the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. NIV 1984 This is a good translation as far as it goes, but one could wish that the word pedagogue or guardian or tutor might be here. Understanding Greek and Roman society in the first century will help us understand the role of the law in the Old Testament and the role of the law in our lives. And that means understanding what a pedagogue was all about. A pedagogue was a trusted family slave put in charge of a minor boy until he reached manhood. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament puts it this way, Among the Greeks and Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them before arriving at the age of manhood. So if you picture a boy in school, a wealthy boy who will inherit great riches, and standing right alongside or behind him a slave who taps him on the shoulder or perhaps tweaks his ear or pinches him a bit when he does not pay attention, this is the picture of these verses. The thing is this, the pedagogue, the law, is only there until the lesson is learned and the boy becomes a man. It is in this sense that the law can lead us to Christ. The law of the Old Testament was designed to hem in the children of Israel, keep them safe and on task until the promised Messiah came. In this law were commands and a very strictly enforced code of conduct. They were truly like children. But this law also contained the gospel, the sacrifices of blood that demonstrated how God would forgive sin in the one sacrifice of his only son. There came a time when the law of Moses had done its work. Faith had come, namely the message that by faith in Jesus Christ, those who live under the threat of law and punishment now understand and believe and rejoice that they are saved simply by the work of Jesus, by his doing and dying and rising. Still today, the law can lead us to Christ when it strikes our conscience, when we poor sinners see our sin and cry out in fear of God and his judgment. It is a little different than in the Old Testament, but not that much. It leads to Christ only by making our need for him crystal clear. Without him we are damned, headed for hell and pain. This message makes sinners sit down and listen. But only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, can bring salvation. Nothing is required once sinners grasp salvation by grace through faith. The pedagogue is out of work. Faith is a gift now given and received. And all who believe have what God promises. But, when there, but where there is no faith, there the pedagogue must still say to the minor child, sit down and listen. There's something important and good and wonderful for you to learn. And now we join Pastor Tom Barthel with the Canaan Bound Devotion. It's about mercy. Genesis 19, 23-29 By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. 
Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain. He saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. What's going on in Abraham's mind as he sees his nephew's city up in smoke? Would he have to chase after Lot again to rescue him from an attack like before? No, he knew this was God's judgment on the city, the one that had been foretold. And Abraham had prayed for Lot. God promised to spare Lot. Recall how Lot was granted his request to flee to Zor, a small village nearby. The destruction that God had threatened now rained down on the city. It was clear that this was a divine judgment against the city. The heavens poured out burning sulfur on the cities and all the plain around it. We might experience similar scenes in a volcano as it erupts today, and its deadly gases come burning with hot rock and ash and decimate all life around it. But this was no natural decimation, no intense meteor shower. It was timed and given by God as a powerful destruction on a specific people. Peter writes for us that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a display of God's just wrath over sin. In the Apostle's second letter, he says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood waters on its ungodly people. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And no one was exempt simply because they belonged to the right family or were traveling with Lot. Lot's wife turned back, gazed and longed for what she should have been fleeing from in terror and awe. The judgment of God is real, and it does not show favoritism. And no, it wasn't just the fact of looking back. It was what was in her heart as she looked the very next verse tells us that Abraham looked upon the destruction too. One looks in respect and awe of faith, the other in something more like disgust, or perhaps sadness, or even maybe questioning the justice of her God. But God is pleased to show favor. He blessed Abraham and showed the whole world his favor through the promised Savior from sin. Jesus took our sins and spared us, not just from fire, but from the fire of hell. And this account teaches us something else quite amazing. Those who trust in him can boldly make request of him for even more favor. That's what all this taught Abraham and still teaches us. Don't let the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah be just about God's judgment. It is written also to be a display of his mercy. Abraham had appealed to God for mercy.
And it says here at the conclusion of it all, He remembered Abraham, and the Lord rescued Lot. God answers prayer. Remember, God will show even more favor. He has spared us from destruction and answers prayer. Remember to pray for God's redeemed people, that he may bring blessing, and that his word may reach more and more as they come to know him as their Savior. We end today with the Branches Band singing Go Tell It from their album, A Branch is Growing. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain, that Jesus
been listening to episode 50 of the Canaanbound podcast. This podcast was first shared in December of 2013. To find out more information or to discover more music from the artists featured on this podcast, visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com. Once again, my name is Kyle. It was a privilege to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit wells.net to find a Wells ministry location near you. Thanks for listening.